0: trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny, And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Gotta
1: be honest with you, I didn't know if I was going to make it to the end of the week. Yeah, there's kind of a little cold that's been going around and of course, like most colds, it goes right for the throat. And I felt like my voice was kind of hanging there on the edge for a couple of days. Yeah, not a big deal to everybody else. Well, I just won't talk as much. You can see the dilemma for me. Chatty Cathy. <laughs> What's going to happen? I don't know. But I but I made it and uh, and I'm encouraged. Lots to talk about today. I want to start with something this isn't going to mean a lot to a lot of people, but uh, when I saw the news story earlier this week that the national Christmas tree had blown over in Washington D.C., and then I saw the story, and there it was—sure enough, there's the national Christmas tree, all, de- all decorated and everything, laying on its side. And uh, no, it wasn't—it uh, wasn't you know Hamas that came over and toppled our Christmas tree. It was the wind. Now, I guess the Park Service got it—you know—standing back up again or whatever. But it was such an interesting omen. And, and there's a story that I want to share with you about the year the Christmas tree wouldn't stand. Now, this was our family's Christmas tree, but maybe you'll understand why. When I saw the national Christmas tree laying there, I was like, "Uh oh, <laughs> this is this is not good." Um, it's been 34 years ago that uh, that we had what I think was probably the worst Christmas ever, and it was the year our Christmas tree wouldn't stand. The reason that it was a tough Christmas is because my dad had struggled with health issues for most of that year, and the day after Thanksgiving, he quietly took me aside and informed me that he had terminal cancer. Now, I remember him breaking the news to me and him saying, "Uh, listen, the doctor says there's nothing more that they can do. And, you know, this is the first time anybody really close to me had ever told me that they were going to die, and even though he didn't use those words, I just could not get my mind around it. I, I literally sat there just kind of looking at him like, So, so what does that mean? Right? I know anybody else would say, Well, dummy, he just told you he's you know, his disease is terminal. But I could not accept that this was going to be his last Christmas. Now, we tried to make the best of it And as his health was deteriorating, I thought, you know, I'm going to do something nice for my parents. I'm going to surprise them. And I bought this beautiful blue spruce Christmas tree. Uh, This is back when Wutheridge Nursery was in business in Twin Falls. And I picked a beauty of a tree. But when I went to set it up, I found out that uh, one of the lower branches was preventing it from seeding fully in the tree stand. And so this left me with a a complication. The tree was top-heavy. It was unstable because I could not get it fully seated, but if I were to take that branch off, it would also remove a great big chunk of this lovely tree. In other words, there'd be a very noticeable part that was missing. And for several days, I got creative. I tried everything I could to keep the tree standing upright. 50-pound test line, you know, with, uh, you know, the cantilevers. I mean, no, I was, I was trying everything I could to, to keep the tree standing up. But every morning, my folks would get up, and they'd find it laying over on the living room floor. Hence, the year the Christmas tree wouldn't stand. So with a heavy heart, we took the branch off. The Christmas tree stood straight and tall, but minus that significant piece, kind of a symbolic representation of our impending loss, now, we tried to keep our sense of humor through all of this, and this it was it was actually my sister's husband at the time who coined the phrase, because we, we were kind of commiserating about, oh, it's just so miserable to see dad suffering and, you know, Christmas going on, and we're all trying to make the best of it. And finally, uh, my sister's hub- husband uh, one day just kind of said, it was the year the Christmas tree wouldn't stand. We all had a good laugh, okay? Some dark humor to try to help us get through a really bad time. But, uh, you know, even Christmas Day... You know, my dad's health was already declining, and on Christmas morning, we're sitting there opening presents. Dad went to uh, to pick one up, and he fell right there on the living room floor, and and it was a it was a hard fall. It hurt, so it shook him up. He went back to bed, and as I recall, I think he, I don't think he he I don't think he left his room for the next four weeks. Like we had to bring in hospice, we brought the hospital bed in and everything, and, and he passed away about four weeks later. Now, for a while, that really affected me. I mean, I did my best to to mask the disappointment at the time, but um, it was really tough. And anybody who's lost someone around Christmas, or even if you just lost someone prior to the holidays, it gets very poignant when Christmas season rolls around. And I found myself getting bitter at Christmas. And it was getting a little bit worse every year. The lights, the songs, the decorations... Other people found them joyous and something to celebrate, but to me, they just were mocking reminders of <clears throat> what once was a very joyful occasion. It seemed like every bit of crass commercialism at Christmas was jumping out at me and kind of reinforcing that, hey, this is no longer a reason, <clears throat> a reason for you to celebrate. Now, I knew that this negative attitude was not a healthy thing. I could see it was beginning to affect friends. It was beginning to affect family members. At the same time, I felt powerless to change it. But there came a point where, I guess it was about five years later, Becky and I went to attend a Christmas program called The Forgotten Carols. Now, that'll be familiar to some of you, for those who aren't. The show is simply a retelling of the Christmas story, but it's retold through the eyes of characters that we don't often consider. These include the innkeeper who turned away Joseph and Mary, a shepherd whose friends told him of the angels and a babe in a manger and a childless woman who held baby Jesus, an angel that failed to make the cut to sing in the heavenly choirs. It's, it's really a fun show. But the important thing is every song and every character gently steered my attention back to the true focal point of why we actually celebrate Christmas. you got to understand, I walked into that auditorium to watch that show with a Grinch-like attitude firmly in place. But my attitude did not survive to the end of the performance. And without being preachy, the Forgotten Carols conveyed this message of divine love that had been missing from my life for too long. And as I watched that show, I just, I, I could feel my vision come back into focus I could feel that uh, that hard heart of mine soften and then expand. And I left the theater that night a changed man. And I'm I'm not ashamed to tell you. When I say changed, I mean it was the kind of change that I couldn't hear songs from that performance for, it was actually for years. I could not hear those songs without uh, welling up in tears. That's how deeply it touched me. Now, interestingly enough, because I was working in radio, I had the opportunity the next day to interview the show's creator. It's a guy named Michael McLean. If you've ever seen Mr. Kruger's Christmas, filmed back, I think, in 1980. At, or, or it was, uh, I'm sorry, it it was released in 1980, probably filmed in 1979 at Temple Square. But it, kind of a sweet film with Jimmy Stewart starring as, as Mr. Kruger. And uh, Michael McLean was the force behind that as well. Super nice guy. And when, I came, when he came to the radio studio, I related to him how I had struggled with Christmas time after my dad's death. And I also told him, you know, your show has restored something to me that I was really missing. And I remember Michael telling me, well, you know, I get this, I get this a lot from audience members who've had a loss during the holidays. And when I thanked him for giving Christmas back to me, he wrapped me up in a hug and just said, you deserve it. So, I, I want to tell you, there is a happy ending to this story. The happy ending is, I got Christmas back, but it was a struggle. And it all started the year the Christmas tree wouldn't stand. And I'm going to ask you to kind of think for just a moment. Are there people around you, are there people in your orbit, your circle of influence, who are currently struggling with loss? Or maybe just somebody whose Christmas tree is figuratively refusing to stand. I mean, on a national level, I don't even know what that means. I'm not sure I want to know what that means. But I do know this. I know where I found peace. And what I'm asking you to consider is if you know someone whose Christmas tree is not standing this year, what might we do to help those individuals feel the love and peace that really needs to be acknowledged this time of year. I mean, it's not going to take any one-size-fits-all kind of shape. It's, it's going to be different in every, in every instance. And I guess time will tell. You know, I, my son came last night. My My adult son came and stayed with us last night because he had to uh, attend a work meeting where we live in, in the city where we live early in the morning. And uh, he came in. We hadn't talked for most of the week. But one of the things he said was, boy, whew. I don't know about next year. And he's talking about, you know, the whole climate, the election, you know, jitters and everything that's going on. And I feel the same way. I don't know what the next year is going to hold. Based on what's happening right now, I expect it's going to be pretty challenging. And I think it's probably good to just acknowledge that right up front, not pretend otherwise. But I'm going to encourage you, in spite of uh, whatever it is that has our national Christmas tree laying over... (laughs) Look for those ways to find peace and to help spread that peace and d- divine love this holiday season. In fact, you may want to even do it beyond the Christmas holidays. I think we're gonna need it.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you for letting me share my Christmas story with you. <laughs> By the way, I've got a link to a story about the Christmas tree, the national Christmas tree blowing over. But uh, let's talk about a couple other things. And Oh, before I go any further, I, I want to just give a quick shout-out here to those of you who take the time to send articles along that you think uh, might be interesting. Um, Jared sent me an article yesterday that... Uh, I had heard about this news story. I don't think I had said much about this, but um, did you see about the court ruling in New York State that that says, yes, the state does have the authority to seize citizens for indefinite quarantine and isolation? In other words, if there's a health emergency, well, state officials can detain individuals for public safety reasons. I'm sure that made uh, Governor Kathy Hochul very happy they're in New York, but then again, she was one of the worst offenders. Not as bad as uh, Whitler, Whitmer, Whitmer. Yeah, that's I think her name in Michigan. Uh, who, by the way, holy cow! You want to talk about uh, how do people go about consolidating power? Well, one of the things they just did in Michigan was the governor there, Gretchen Whitmer, just signed into law, and uh, I guess it's a clarification to their v- domestic violence laws adding 100 or more misdemeanor things by which the authorities can come and take your firearms away in the name of stopping domestic violence. Now, if you set foot in an ice fishing shanty of someone from whom you are estranged or, you know, who who has a a restraining order, boom, off to jail. Now, to see, restraining orders make sense, but, I mean, it's like, if you set foot on their property, yes, we can take your guns. If you communicate on a telephone or on a, you know, laptop or a tablet, something that, that upsets them. And basically the governor said, don't upset your current or your ex or we'll take away your guns. It's like red flag laws only, you know, with with much more um, vague criteria as to why we can take them. And I don't think it's a lifetime ban. I think it's like an eight-year ban, but still, I don't see a lot of good coming from that. Okay, my point for this, this, uh, departure here, is simply thank you to those who send me these articles and who who do their best to help me stay caught up. I do spend a lot of time in the day looking around, trying to find good, relevant information, but I can't see it all. And I really appreciate it. I truly love those who send me the information that, that I can then pass on to you. So I wanted to share this commentary from Jeffrey Tucker. This one really hit a nerve with me because it's bad enough politicians can never admit when they're wrong, but also pundits tend to fall into that category. And and here's a good example of it. Peggy Noonan, former speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, can't admit she was wrong about COVID and lockdown and mandate policies. Jeffrey Tucker says, the answer to the question, will they ever admit to being wrong, is of course no. And he says, I'm speaking in particular of the architects of the lockdown and mandate policies that wrecked the rights and liberties of billions of people worldwide. Now they want to pretend like it never happened or that someone else is responsible. And they do this even as they hammer out policies and treaties that normalize that exact response. Okay, some tweaks here and there in the future while forging institutions that crush dissent. Those people we know about, they're rather hopeless. But there's another case, a different case, the -the run-of-the-mill pundit who got it wrong and just can't admit it. Jeffrey Tucker says these are the people who should trouble us more because saying sorry in this case is completely cost-free. In fact, the opposite is true. Readers would cheer their humility. They would congratulate them for their honesty. The only cost would be psychological in some measure, right? They'd have to humble themselves. They're supposed to be these great opinion leaders, but they can't bring themselves to admit that they were so bloody wrong on a huge topic. And he says this comes to mind because of an effusive and even absurdist article by Peggy Noonan in the Wall Street Journal. And it was about how and why Taylor Swift is the greatest thing America has to offer. Now, the language here is intentionally over the top and she knows it. It's a fun way to write. He goes, I know, because I used to write this way all the time, celebrating the glories of vending machine chicken salad or the McDonald's cheese stick or whatever you have. But he says my argument here is not with the hyperbole as such. The problem comes deep into the article where she says the following, quote, downtowns across the country, uniquely battered by the pandemic and the riots and demonstrations of 2020 are, while well, she's there, brought to life with an influx of, invisitor- of visitors and small business boom. Wherever she went, it was like the past three years didn't happen. Okay, now she's singing the praises of Taylor Swift, but Peggy Noonan, really? He said, Jeffrey Tucker says, battered by the pandemic, seriously? The pathetic pathogen never closed a single business, church, school, country club, arts theater, mall, stadium, or public park. Governments did that on the advice of crazed experts who pushed for this nonsense with no concern for public well-being. Media got involved cheering the lockdowns and denouncing anyone who doubted their glories. Big tech censored dissent voices, dissident voices, rather. Now, Noonan could have fixed that sentence with one word. She could have added this one word, the word response. The pandemic response. It would have been easy enough to type that word. Yeah, it's a bit lame, but at least it's accurate. So why does she refuse? You know the answer. She was among the panic mongers who thought lockdowns, masks, and vaccine mandates were just fine. She wrote about it constantly. Jeffrey Tucker says, I don't know why, but she did. She's assiduously avoided admitting this for years now, even to the point of writing about the great resignation without ever mentioning lockdowns or vaccine mandates. She mentions in passing that at the height of the pandemic, more than 120,000 businesses temporarily closed. She doesn't mention, though, that they were closed by force. She continually refers to the shock of the pandemic without mentioning that it was the shock of the pandemic response. Her penchant here runs far back even to the vaccine rollout, which she called a, hu- a human and scientific miracle. Whoops. Even at the onset of lockdown, she was all in. Quote, we should go forward with a new national commitment to masks, social distancing, hand washing. These simple things have provided the most valuable tools in the tool chest. We have to enter each day armored up. End quote. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, Okay, Peggy, we get it. You bought all the propaganda. Many did. We corresponded at the time. And she was very cordial. He says, Until you realized that I was on the anti-lockdown side. It didn't matter after that, whatever evidence I presented to you, that the government was up to no good. I sent link after link and was very friendly. At that point, you stopped replying, despite having many mutual friends. Uh, he says, I wasn't being antagonistic. I was just hoping you would get ahead of the curve. But you didn't want to get ahead of the curve. You wanted to thread the needle of opinion very carefully. The trouble is that the needle changed or went away completely. Now you're stuck with your old opinions of the past, which you keep trying to justify in the least auspicious way possible. And he says this article was the latest example. I assume that you're going to keep this up as long as the Wall Street Journal affords you the space. Now he says, I can't say that I fully understand this way of thinking, but this much is clear. Peggy is hardly alone. Nearly every writer in every venue talks this way. Finally, the media is talking about ill health, learning loss, shut businesses, demoralized population, angry voters, loss of trust, inflation, you name it. Finally, there is talk about all of this, but universally he says the prattle is the same. It's always the pandemic, never the government's response. And he gives you four different headlines that, that prove this out. From psychology today, nine ways the pandemic may have led to precocious puberty. How about Forbes? Kids played team sports less in twenty twenty-two before less in twenty twenty two than before COVID nineteen pandemic. Axios, here's one. Walking trips fall sharply in Portland post-pandemic. And one from Fox, Messiah restaurant owner navigates pandemic recovery. And so it goes. As if to wipe out the history of the worst public health policy in the history of humanity, plenty of people want to do that. Certainly most governments in the world would like that. Regardless, these pundits should not help them. Even if they were wrong in the past, nothing is, is stopping them from admitting the truth now. He says it would be nice if we would get some truth from politicians, too, rather than this strange silence. No one has had the guts to grill Trump, in particular, on the details of why he greenlighted the mess. Now, that aside, Jeffrey Tucker says, The pundit class is not paid to be government propagandists, but tellers of truth. In this case, it simply would not take much. Just a bit more than claiming a single pathogen among trillions floating around the world caused the whole world to, fa- to fly into upheaval. The truth is that getting out there, he says, nonetheless, even if you can't read about it often in mainstream news, but we have to get this history correct. Everything depends on it.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Show. All right. Welcome back to the show. Man,
1: I just really appreciate Jeffrey Tucker and his take on uh, why we just can't get the COVID narrative right as far as the journalists and politicians want to blame some microbial agent for doing this when, in fact, it was the government response that wrecked our world. Plain and simple. All right. couple different things here. You know, so much of what corporate media reports to us each day is simply a distraction from what actually matters in our lives. Picked up a great article this morning off of lewrockwell.com, Dangerous Distractions, We Are All Members of the Wedding. Now, this is from Valerie Protopapus. I hope I'm saying her name correctly. She says, many, many years ago, I watched a movie on TV entitled Member of the Wedding, and recently upon reading the actual plot of that film, she says, I realized most of it went over my young head like a tent. All that I understood was that a rural southern family was planning a wedding, and the plot was an account of the preparation for the event and the actions of those taking part in it. Now, of course, it involved a great deal more, but as I noted, I was too young to comprehend the gist of the story. One thing I did notice was that throughout all the goings-on, a young boy who seemed somewhat irrelevant to the plot was constantly complaining, My head hurts. Now, of course, this was presented in the story as meaningless, especially given the response to his complaints by the others. She says, I don't even remember if any offered a kind word to him in his apparent discomfort. Most just assumed that he, as do many children, was seeking attention and at a very awkward and inconvenient time. She says, as for myself, and I assume the audience as a whole, the matter seemed little more than a plot device on the periphery of a central theme designed to produce a sort of annoying distraction. Imagine my astonishment when, almost at the end of the movie, I discovered that the boy had died of a brain tumor and it was this malignant condition that had created his suffering rather than a desire for attention. Now, she, said, he, she says, I certainly didn't expect that, and indeed I still remember my astonishment and even shame for my own failure to have any empathy for the sufferer, film or no film. I had made a judgment based upon the most superficial of evidence while the characters, deep in their meaningless plans, had by their failure to respond allowed a distraction to become a tragedy. She says, I don't remember much else about the film, but the sudden death of even a minor character whose only seeming function in the plot was to complain made a deep impression on me, child, that I was. My response at the time was normal, at least for a child, in that I wondered if, had the boy's complaint been taken more seriously, if something could have been done to prevent such an awful outcome, especially or such an awful result, rather. Of course, in reality, probably not, especially in those days, but... Even so, she says, I reasoned that at least he wouldn't have been ignored and alone for the few remaining weeks of his short life. She says, it was for me, child that I was, a tragedy of considerable proportions. Yet, even so, the wedding and those directly involved remained the central theme of the drama. With death taking a relatively inconsequential role in the story. But again, reasoning as a child, I couldn't imagine how death could be inconsequential. Now, of course, in the story, the boy's plight was used, as noted above, as a distraction, causing the audience to respond with shock when what had been a mere annoyance became something so much greater than the celebration theme that was, to her, the central element of the story. Now, distraction's always been a good strategy. In fact, it's the bread and butter of stage magicians, the means by which they keep their audience concentrating on one thing while sleight of hand is performed on the other. The playwright kept his audience's attention on the wedding and its participants while quietly introducing another storyline that in the end changed everything that went before. A person who was at least of some consequence in the story dies, ends, ceases to exist. And this is a complete surprise to both the characters and the audience. Whatever happens to those who remain, this tragic event cannot be changed. And... We should learn something of life from this stage maneuver. For much is going on today that's not crucial, or that is crucial, rather, not just to our way of life or our quality of life, but of life itself. Now, for example, distracted by a faux pandemic and using fear as a weapon, literally billions of people have chosen to undergo what has become a great culling of humanity through so-called vaccines that have been in production far longer than the disease they were supposedly created to prevent. Worse, we continue to be jabbed even after the people who created, dispensed, and profited from these bioweapons have admitted that they prevent nothing, cure nothing, and don't even stop the spread of any disease whatsoever. Yet despite images on the internet of people either dropping dead or flailing about helplessly after receiving these potions, people still rush to receive their first, second, or fourth installment with the understanding that they might have to continue to do so forever, or at least for what's left of their lives. Meanwhile, there have been other distractions that have resulted in riots and cultural upheaval, the end of honest elections in the United States and throughout the West, and an open attack on Western civilization and the race and faith that are its foundation, Caucasians and Christianity. Criminals are returned to the streets in the name of social justice, where they continue to rape, rob, and kill well, the laws that once formed the basis of a culture are now dependent not on what has been done, but who has or who has not done it. Whew. That is true. And that one stings. She says when any government is no longer founded on laws that treat all men equally, then remember or re, then she says that government is a tyranny even for the individuals who benefit from its evils. As Thomas Jefferson once point out, pointed out, a government that can give everything can also take everything. As well, regarding distractions, she says, I also remember watching a member of the wedding and seeing the first examples of time-lapse photography. I was amazed to watch flowers open in seconds, illustrating what might have been an hours-long process. Today, amazing things could be done via technology, including such marvels as revealing the future of the universe in mere minutes. On the other hand, when things follow the ordinary sequence of events often very important matters are lost in the slow passage of time necessary for them to occur. Oh, we can look back and see what happened. But we seem not to be able to take that understanding into the present and see what's happening right in front of us until, as in the case of the dead boy in the film, it's too late to do anything. So the question becomes, when is it too late? When does what's happening reach a point of no return? In the case of the child in the play given his condition, it probably would have been too late before he ever said that his head hurt. That was the nature of the malady with which the author with godlike power afflicted his character. However, usually, historically, at some point in time, it might have been possible to stop, allay, restrain, or otherwise prevent the eventual disaster from taking place. In other words, unlike the fate of the child, the consequences of many tragedies were not necessarily inevitable. Sometimes the needful act itself is rather small and seemingly insignificant, as with a misplaced radio message giving the coordinates of a large iceberg that was received on the afternoon of April 14th by the Titanic, a message that never reached the bridge of that doomed vessel because the radio operators were overwhelmed by the mindless and needless radio traffic from Titanic's wealthy passengers to the radio station at Cape Race. Valerie Protopapa says, Unfortunately, we cannot know the whys and wherefores of successful efforts that have prevented disasters, because where these have occurred, the disaster itself never happened. On the other hand, we can certainly look back on past disasters, such as that of the Titanic, and find that moment in time in which an act of nature or man might have changed everything had it come to pass. Interestingly enough, Usually, if the missed incident involved human action, or more to the point, a failure of human action, that failure, as in the case of the message received but not delivered, was the result of a fatal distraction. Interesting article. I, this is the first one I've read from Valerie Protopapas, but um, she makes a lot of sense. And I guess as it applies to us... We have a lot of distractions being beamed at us right now. I think political distractions are probably the biggest. If you asked me, could you pinpoint one thing that people are focused on that's taking them away from the stuff that actually matters in their life, politics is probably the first thing that I would look at. Just because people spend so much time, you know, communicating back and forth about it and you know, complaining about this and exhorting that and it, it it's we act as if, everything rests on a particular political outcome. Now, look, I'm not going to deny that politics can certainly influence our lives for good or for bad. But I think we give it way too much credit as to whether or not the sun is going to rise this morning or, you know, whether we'll be able to take another breath of air. And frankly, politicians like it that way. Why wouldn't they? It just, it feeds their sense of status. See, you need us. And then they'll do everything in their power to remind us, you know, the world is a dangerous, broken place. And you need us to protect you and keep you safe. And, you know, tell you every single move that you or your kids must make. Yeah. Why do we fall for it? I don't know. Habit. Some people define themselves by who or what they're against. I've been there, done that. And as guilty as sin of that Might be a good time to step back a little bit from, uh, you know, mass media,
0: politics as, as well, and evaluate for yourself what matters most. This is the Brian Hyde show. This. Is the Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. By the way,
1: I haven't uh, taken a moment here to have my monthly freak out that the calendar page just turned, but here goes. Ah, look at that. It's December. No, really. It's like I blinked in September, and suddenly here we are. By the way, it's snowing like crazy too today, so. Um, it it looks like December. <laughs> I guess it's it's not like gee with this beautiful summer weather, you just can't imagine that it's already this late in the year. All right, couple things I want to point out. Um I oh, by the way, I have to mention this. I probably should have said this at the beginning of the show, but I'm gonna mention it. A new page has launched on my Substack. Now my Substack is Hide in Plain Sight. If you haven't visited, go to hide H Y D E in Substack dot com. That's where you're going to find my little two-minute daily truth bombs. Very non-political, but very focused on helping people regain their sense of proportion in the world, and more importantly, start choosing their own path. The second page that you will find—it's up at the top of uh, the of the hide in plain sight Substack—is one called the Sovereign Biped. We just launched it today. The first article published. This is all about reclaiming your autonomy, and specifically reclaiming it in such a way that uh, you are actually making your own choices, living a life of your purpose, and I would encourage you, please check it out. If it strikes you as something that, uh, that, you know, scratches the itch, consider subscribing. In fact, if you really want to, uh, you know, if it really provides value, something that you feel like, man, I would share this with friends, please consider being a supporter of it. You know, there are different uh, different levels of support. I mean, for five bucks a month, you could, you could make this kind of content possible. And what you will learn about is uh, some of the different areas of personal sovereignty we have to be willing to claim if we want to be free and independent. These include your financial and economic sovereignty, occupational and career sovereignty, home production and storage, right? Self-reliance physical health, spiritual health, emotional health, education and learning, as well as your social sovereignty. None of this requires you to separate yourself from society and go live in the woods like the Unabomber. This is about mastering the skills and the responsibilities you need to be self-reliant and to own yourself, to claim ownership of yourself in a highly regulated culture. I've partnered up with uh, Russ Anderson, Russ is married to my cousin, Melissa. He and I have known each other since about 2005. Actually, he knew me a lot earlier. He visited when I was just a little kid, and uh, he and Melissa came by. But we've lived apart for many, many years. When I moved to Cedar City back in 2005, uh, Russ and Melissa, happily, that's where, where they make their home. And he is just a remarkable guy. And I'm so happy to have teamed up with him to try to help people find a life filled with purpose. Of their choosing. So, sorry, that sounded like a really long ad, but really, I'm, I'm excited because this is about the stuff we can do, right? We can sit and complain, well, oh, did you hear what Biden did? did you see what they're doing? Oh, no, no. I, I did it for many years. I know there's there's whole industries that still depend on that complaining. But if you're really serious about changing things up in your world, it's got to start with you. And it's got to be your decision. It can't be, well, someone in authority has finally said, okay, you're free to make the changes you feel like you need. Those are ones you have to choose for yourself. So, first thing I wanted to uh, share with you, this is the article of the day. This is from law and liberty, or lawliberty.org. And it's an essay from, I hope I get his name right here, Michael Luchess, Remember the Founding. And, you know, there are voices out there that, that treat the America's founding generation as a cult. And, you know, everything they had to say, you know, it's it's irrelevant. It was from so long ago, and it just has no grasp whatsoever of the the kind of historical understanding or the principles upon which the American founding fathers stood. I'm sorry, if that sounds sexist, well, there are founding mothers too. I know, but we'll say the founding generation then if that, if that eases things, but... Uh, for instance, there's a there's an article in uh, Compact magazine, kind of a left-wing magazine, about uh, Forget the Founding Fathers. Michael Lind argues that respect for the American founding is a cult that inhibits our ability to make sound policy. In fact, he actually claims that appeals to the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration prevent Americans from having nice things like a living wage and labor unions and guaranteed access to inexpensive health care or adequate social insurance. Well, he's Kind of right. It's because they, they encompass correct principles which limit government and focus on the individual value of each person rather than the collective. The rights of each individual rather than just collective rights. And the whole gist of this article is that despite what Michael Lind thinks, the American founding is not a dead letter. The reason it's not is because our Constitution is rooted in eternal principles that point the way toward true social renewal. Ideas that animated the founding are still full of vital energy. The actual deeds of the founders can serve as models for political action. I, I think it's a marvelous essay, and I would really strongly recommend it to anybody who, uh, who still believes that those principles apply and, and have meaning. All right, final article I want to share with you. This is one from Jeff Minnick from intellectualtakeout.org, Speaking Truth in an Age of Deception. He starts with a quote from Winston Smith in George Orwell's 1984. Freedom is the freedom to say that two plus two make four. If that is granted, all else follows. In the end, uh, later in the party, or later in the novel you read, in the end, the party would announce that two and two made five, and you would have to believe it. Jeff says, in 2020, our American version of the party, big government, big tech, and corporate media, announced that 2 plus 2 makes 5. Faced with what they declared to be a deadly virus and breaking all historical protocols for fighting infectious illness, these entities waged war on facts and truth, closing down American businesses, shuttering schools, locking up churches, forcing people to wear masks and social distance, and in some places, forbidding visits to parks and beaches. Fear was the chief weapon of enforcement, fear of death from the virus, fear of imprisonment and fines from government, and fear of social banishment. By the way, do you want some good news? I think it was Lithuania that uh, has just started to return the fines that they have taken from people or that were assessed on people for violating COVID protocols. They apologized for getting it wrong, and they're giving back, I don't remember how many millions of dollars in euros that uh, people were ordered to pay. Good for them. I wish ours would would do likewise. Now, back to Jeff Minnick's article. Those who insisted that 2 plus 2 make 4 and that the government's dictates were worthless and the new vaccine dangerous found themselves erased from social media, threatened with loss of jobs or licenses, booted out of hospitals and the military. By the way, have you seen the military now telling... These people, they kicked out for not taking the jab. Um, you can come back if you'd like. We can just pretend like this never happened. I would have a very Elon Musk type response <laughs> for for any communication like that if I were in their shoes. Uh, or, or that, or I would just say, nah, I'm good, bro. Thanks. Oh, and Jeff points out, as renowned feminist writer Naomi Wolf learned, not even members in good standing with the party were exempt. In her newly released book, Facing the Beast, Courage, Faith, and Resistance in a New Dark Age, Wolf writes at length about the ostracism that followed her refusal to be vaccinated and her reporting on the harm done by the vaccine, particularly to women. In what she calls the before world, she was a longtime liberal and feminist icon, author of eight bestsellers, consultant to political figures like Bill Clinton and Al Gore, and a member in good standing of Manhattan's in-crowd. Wolf was privileged to be part of the cultural scene, made up of influencers on the progressive left. But that membership ended abruptly when Wolf questioned the novel mRNA vaccines. Her doubt called forth waves of bots and trolls, threats and harassment. As she continued her investigations into the constitutional and medical issues of America's pandemic policies, Wolf was excluded from parties and gatherings of friends. deplatformed from Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Mocked in the media as a conspiracy theorist, still branded that, by the way, on Wikipedia, an anti-vaxxer, and even a Trumper. Now, Jeff Minnick says, having read her book and some of the articles on her substack, and now um, other books like uh, Bodies of Others, The New Authoritarians, COVID-19, The War Against the Human, he says, I applaud this woman's bravery. Like so many others did, Wolf could have wrapped her doubts about the vaccine in silence and preserved her place in the status quo. But instead... Having concluded that 2 plus 2 does indeed make 4, she stood her ground, spoke the truth, and suffered the consequences. By the way, I think that is an excellent measure of whether or not to to take someone seriously. Clearly, uh, she has some skin in the game. And that's uh, to me, that makes all the difference in the world. If Naomi Wolf has skin in the game and she's willing to suffer for what she believes is true... Even if I disagree with her, I can't at least, I can't help but at least give her respect for being willing to speak the truth in a time where truth is, uh, shall we say, not warmly received. Jeff Mendick says, so bravo for Naomi Wolf. It's a reminder of why we must continue to speak the truth and stand against madness and lies.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show.